Chapter Twelve of Work: A Story of Experience. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Lee Paquette. Work: A Story of Experience by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter Twelve: Christie's Gala. On the 4th of September, Christie woke up, saying to herself, "'It is my birthday, but no one knows it, so I shall get no presents. Ah, well, I'm too old for that now, I suppose.' But she sighed as she said it, for well she knew one never is too old to be remembered and beloved. Just then the door opened, and Mrs. Sterling entered, carrying what looked very like a pile of snowflakes in her arms. Laying this upon the bed, she kissed Christie, saying with a tone and gesture that made the words a benediction, "'A happy birthday, and God bless thee, my daughter.' Before Christie could do more than hug both gift and giver, a great bouquet came flying in at the open window, aimed with such skill that it fell upon the bed, while David's voice called out from below, "'A happy birthday, Christie, and many of them.' "'How sweet, how kind of you this is! "'I didn't dream you knew about today "'and never thought of such a beautiful surprise,' "'cried Christie, touched and charmed "'by this unexpected celebration. "'Thee mentioned it once long ago, and we remembered. "'They are very humble gifts, my dear, "'but we could not let the day pass "'without some token of the thanks we owe thee "'for these months of faithful service "'and affectionate companionship.' Christie had no answer to this little address, and was about to cry as the only adequate expression of her feelings, when a hearty, Hear, hear! from below made her laugh and call out, You conspirators, how dare you lay plots and then exult over me when I can't find words to thank you? I always did think you were a set of angels, and now I'm quite sure of it. Thee may be right about Davy. "'but I am only a prudent old woman "'and have taken much pleasure in privately knitting this light wrap to wear "'when thee sits in the porch, for the evenings will soon grow chilly. "'My son did not know what to get, "'and finally decided that flowers would suit thee best, "'so he made a bunch of those thee loves "'and would toss it in as if he was a boy. "'I like that way, and both my presents suit me exactly,' said Christie wrapping the fleecy shawl about her, and admiring the nosegay in which her quick eye saw all her favorites, even to a plumy spray of the little wild asters which she loved so much. Now, child, I will step down and see about breakfast. Take thy time, for this is to be a holiday, and we mean to make it a happy one if we can. With that, the old lady went away, and Christie soon followed, looking very fresh and blithe as she ran down smiling behind her great bouquet. David was in the porch, training up the morning glories that bloomed late and lovely in that sheltered spot. He turned as she approached, held out his hand, and bent a little as if he was moved to add a tenderer greeting. But he did not, only held the hand she gave him for a moment, as he said with the paternal expression unusually visible, "'I wished you many happy birthdays.' and if you go on getting younger every year like this, you will surely have them. It was the first compliment he had ever paid her, and she liked it, though she shook her head as if disclaiming it, and answered brightly, 
I used to think many years would be burdensome, and just before I came here I felt as if I could not bear another one. But now I like to live, and hope I shall a long, long time. I'm glad of that. And how do you mean to spend these long years of yours? asked David, brushing back the lock of hair that was always falling into his eyes, as if he wanted to see more clearly the hopeful face before him. In doing what your morning glories do, climb up as far and as fast as I can before the frost comes, answered Christie, looking at the pretty symbol she had chosen. You have got on a good way already, then, began David, smiling at her fancy. Oh, no, I haven't, she said quickly. I'm only about halfway up. See here, I'll tell how it is, and pointing to the different parts of the flowery wall, she added in her earnest way, I've watched these grow, and had many thoughts about them, as I sit sewing in the porch. These variegated ones down low are my childish fancies, most of them gone to seed, you see. These lovely blue ones of all shades are my girlish dreams and hopes and plans. Poor things! Some are dead, some torn by the wind, and only a few pale ones left quite perfect. Here you observe they grow somber with a tinge of purple. That means pain and gloom, and there is where I was when I came here. Now they turn from those sad colors to crimson, rose, and soft pink. That's the happiness and health I found here. You and your dear mother planted them, and you see how strong and bright they are. She lifted up her hand, and gathering one of the great rosy cups offered it to him, as if it were brimful of the thanks she could not utter. He comprehended, took it with a quiet thank you, and stood looking at it for a moment, as if her little compliment pleased him very much. "'And these,' he said presently, pointing to the delicate violet bells that grew next the crimson ones. The color deepened a shade in Christie's cheek, but she went on with no other sign of shyness, for with David she always spoke out frankly, because she could not help it. Those mean love to me, not passion. The deep red ones half hidden under the leaves mean that. My violet flowers are the best and purest love we can know, the sort that makes life beautiful and lasts forever. The white ones that come next are tinged with that soft color here and there, and they mean holiness. I know there will be love in heaven, so whether I ever find it here or not, I am sure I shall not miss it wholly. Then, as if glad to leave the theme that never can be touched without reverent emotion by a true woman, she added, looking up to where a few spotless blossoms shone like silver in the light. Far away there in the sunshine are my highest aspirations. I cannot reach them, but I can look up and see their beauty, believe in them, and try to follow where they lead. Remember that frost comes latest to those that bloom the highest, and keep my beautiful white flowers as long as I can. The mush is ready. Come to breakfast, children, called Mrs. Sterling, as she crossed the hall with a teapot in her hand. Christie's face fell. Then she exclaimed, laughing, "'That's always the way. I never take a poetic flight, but in comes the mush and spoils it all.' "'Not a bit. And that's where women are mistaken. Souls and bodies should go on together, and you will find that a hearty breakfast won't spoil the little hymn the morning glories sung.' And David set her a good example by eating two bowls of hasty pudding and milk with the lovely flour in his buttonhole. 
"'Now what are we to do next?' asked Christie, when the usual morning work was finished. "'In about ten minutes thee will see, I think,' answered Mrs. Sterling, glancing at the clock and smiling at the bright, expectant look in the younger woman's eyes. She did see, for in less than ten minutes the rumble of an omnibus was heard, a sound of many voices, and then the whole Wilkins brood came whooping down the lane. It was good to see Ma Wilkins jog ponderously after in full state and festival array, her bonnet trembling with bows, red roses all over her gown, and a parasol of uncommon brilliancy brandished joyfully in her hand. It was better still to see her hug Christie when the latter emerged, flushed and breathless, from the chaos of arms, legs, and chubby faces in which she was lost for several tumultuous moments and it was best of all to see the good woman place her cherished bunnet in the middle of the parlor table as a choice and lovely ornament, administer the family pocket handkerchief all round, and then settle down with a hearty, "'Well, now, Miss Sterling, you've no idea how tickled we all was when Mr. David came and told us you was going to have a galley here today. It was so kind of providential.' "'for Leisha was invited out to a day's pleasuring, "'so I could leave just as well as not. "'The children's been hankering to come the worst kind "'and go plumbing as they did last month, "'though I told em berries was gone weeks ago. "'I really thought I'd never get em here whole. "'They trained so in that bus. "'Wash would go on the step and kept falling off. "'Gusty's hat blew out her winder. "'Them two bad boys tumbled round loose.' And dear little Victory sit like a lady, only I find she got both feet in the basket right atop of the birthday cake I made a purpose for Christy. It hasn't hurt it a bit. There was a cloth over it, and I like it all the better for the marks of Toddy's little feet, bless em. And Christy cuddled the culprit with one hand while she revealed the damaged delicacy with the other wondering inwardly what evil star was always in the ascendant when mrs wilkins made cake now my dear you just go and have a good frolic with them children i'm a-going to get dinner and you a-going to play so we don't want to see no more of you till the bell rings said mrs wilkins pinning up her gown and shooing her brood out of the room which they entirely filled catching up her hat christie obeyed feeling as much like a child as any of the excited six. The revels that followed no pen can justly record, for goths and vandals on the rampage but feebly describes the youthful Wilkinsons when their spirits effervesced after a month's bottling up in close home quarters. David locked the greenhouse door the instant he saw them, and pervaded the premises generally like a most affable but very watchful policeman for the ravages those innocents committed much afflicted him. Yet he never had the heart to say a word of reproof when he saw their raptures over dandelions, the relish with which they devoured fruit, and the good it did the little souls and bodies to enjoy unlimited liberty, green grass, and country air, even for a day. Christie usually got them into the big meadow as soon as possible, and there let them gamble at will, while she sat on the broken ball of an apple-tree and watched her flock like an old-fashioned shepherdess. Today she did so, and when the children were happily sailing boats, tearing to and fro like wild colts, or discovering the rustic treasures nurse nature lays ready to gladden little hearts and hands, 
Christie sat idly making a garland of green brakes, and ruddy schumach leaves ripened before the early frosts had come. David saw her there, and feeling that he might come off guard for a time, went strolling down to lean upon the wall, and chat in the friendly fashion that had naturally grown up between these fellow workers. She was waiting for the new supply of ferns little Adelaide was getting for her by the wall, and while she waited she sat resting her cheek upon her hand and smiling to herself, as if she saw some pleasant picture in the green grass at her feet. "'Now I wonder what she's thinking about,' said David's voice close by, and Christie straightaway answered, "'Philip Fletcher.' "'And who is he?' asked David, settling his elbow in a comfortable niche between the mossy stones, so that he could lean and loaf at his ease. "'The brother of the lady whose children I took care of,' and Christie wished she had thought before she answered that first question, for in telling her adventures at different times she had omitted all mention of this gentleman. "'Tell about him, as the children say. Your experiences are always interesting, and you look as if this man was uncommonly entertaining in some way,' said David, indolently inclined to be amused. "'Oh, dear, no, not at all entertaining. Invalids seldom are, and he was sick and lazy, conceited and very cross sometimes.' Christie's heart rather smote her as she said this, remembering the last look poor Fletcher gave her. "'A nice man, to be sure, but I don't see anything to smile about,' persisted David, who liked reasons for things, a masculine trait often very trying to feminine minds. "'I was thinking of a little quarrel we once had. He found out that I had been an actress, for I basely did not mention that fact when I took the place, and so got properly punished for my deceit. I thought he'd tell his sister, of course, so I did it myself.' and retired from the situation as much disgusted with Christie Devon as you are. Perhaps I ought to be, but I don't find that I am. Do you know I think that old Fletcher was a sneak? And David looked as if he would rather like to mention his opinion to that gentleman. He probably thought he was doing his duty to the children. Few people would approve of an actress for a teacher, you know. He had seen me play, and remembered it all of a sudden, and told me of it. "'That was the way it came about,' said Christie hastily, feeling that she must get out of the scrape as soon as possible, or she would be driven to tell everything in justice to Mr. Fletcher. "'I should like to see you act.' "'You a Quaker, and express such a worldly and dreadful wish?' cried Christie, much amused and very grateful that his thoughts had taken a new direction. "'I'm not, and never have been.' mother married out of the sect, and though she keeps many of her old ways, always left me free to believe what I choose. I wear drab because I like it, and say thee to her because she likes it, and it is pleasant to have a little word all our own. I've been to theatres, but I don't care much for them. Perhaps I should if I'd had Fletcher's luck in seeing you play. You didn't lose much. I was not a good actress." "'Though now and then, when I liked my part, I did pretty well,' they said, answered Christie modestly. "'Why didn't you go back after the accident?' asked David, who had heard that part of the story. "'I felt that it was bad for me, and so retired to private life.' "'Do you ever regret it?' "'Sometimes, when the restless fit is on me. But not so often now as I used to do. 
for on the whole I'd rather be a woman than act a queen. Good, said David, and then added persuasively, but you will play for me some time, won't you? I've a curious desire to see you do it. Perhaps I'll try, replied Christie, flattered by his interest and not unwilling to display her little talent. Who are you making that for? It's very pretty, asked David, who seemed to be in an inquiring frame of mind that day. Anyone who wants it. I only do it for the pleasure. I always liked pretty things, but since I have lived among flowers and natural people, I seem to care more than ever for beauty of all kinds, and love to make it if I can without stopping for any reason but the satisfaction. Tell them, dear, that if eyes were made for seeing, then beauty is its own excuse for being, observed David, who had a weakness for poetry, and finding she liked his sort, quoted to Christie almost as freely as to himself. Exactly. So look at that and enjoy it. And she pointed to the child, standing knee-deep in graceful ferns, looking as if she grew there, a living buttercup, with her buff frock off at one plump shoulder and her bright hair shining in the sun. Before David could express his admiration, the little picture was spoiled, for Christie called out, "'Come, Vic, bring me some more pretties!' startling baby so that she lost her balance and disappeared with a muffled cry, leaving nothing to be seen but a pair of small convulsive shoes, soles uppermost among the brakes. David took a leap, reversed Vic, and then let her compose her little feelings by sticking bits of green in all the buttonholes of his coat, as he sat on the wall while she stood beside him in the safe shelter of his arm. "'You are very like an Englishman,' said Christie, after watching the pair for a few minutes. "'How do you know?' asked David, looking surprised. "'There were several in our company, and I found them very much alike. Blunt and honest, domestic and kind. Hard to get at, but true as steel when once won. Not so brilliant and original as Americans, perhaps, but more solid and steadfast. On the whole, I think them the manliest men in the world.' answered Christie, in the decided way young people have of expressing their opinions. "'You speak as if you had known and studied a great variety of men,' said David, feeling that he need not resent the comparison she had made. "'I have, and it has done me good. Women who stand alone in the world and have their own way to make have a better chance to know men truly than those who sit safe at home and only see one side of mankind. We lose something.' but I think we gain a great deal that is more valuable than admiration, flattery, and the superficial service most men give to our sex. Someone says, Companionship teaches men and women to know, judge, and treat one another justly. I believe it, for we who are compelled to be fellow workers with men understand and value them more truly than many a belle who has a dozen lovers sighing at her feet. I see their faults and follies, but I also see so much to honor, love, and trust, that I feel as if the world was full of brothers. Yes, as a general rule, men have been kinder to me than women, and if I wanted a staunch friend, I'd choose a man, for they wear better than women, who ask too much, and cannot see that friendship lasts longer, if a little respect and reserve go with the love and confidence." Christie had spoken soberly, with no thought of flattery or effect, 
from the memory of many kindnesses bestowed on her by many men, from rough Joe Butterfield to Mr. Power, gave warmth and emphasis to her words. The man sitting on the wall appreciated the compliment to his sex, and proved that he deserved his share of it by taking it exactly as she meant it, and saying heartily, "'I like that, Christie, and wish more women thought and spoke as you do.' If they had had my experience they would, and not be ashamed of it. I am so old now I can say these things and not be misjudged, for even some sensible people think this honest sort of fellowship impossible if not improper. I don't, and I never shall, so if I can ever do anything for you, David, forget that I am a woman and tell me as freely as if I was a younger brother. I wish you were. "'So do I. You'd make a splendid elder brother.' "'No, a very bad one.' There was a sudden sharpness in David's voice that jarred on Christie's ear, and made her look up quickly. She only caught a glimpse of his face, and saw that it was strangely troubled, as he swung himself over the wall with little Vic on his arm and went toward the house, saying abruptly, "'Baby sleepy. She must go in.' Christie sat some time longer, wondering what she had said to disturb him, and when the bell rang went in still perplexed. But David looked as usual, and the only trace of disquiet was an occasional hasty shaking back of the troublesome lock, and the slight knitting of the brows, two tokens, as she had learned to know, of impatience or pain. She was soon so absorbed in feeding the children, hungry and clamorous as young birds for their food, that she forgot everything else. When dinner was done and cleared away, she devoted herself to Mrs. Wilkins for an hour or two. While Mrs. Sterling took her nap, the infants played riotously in the lane, and David was busy with orders. The arrival of Mr. Power drew everyone to the porch to welcome him. As he handed Christie a book, he asked with a significant smile, "'Have you found him yet?' She glanced at the title of the new gift, read Heroes and Hero Worship, and answered merrily, "'No, sir, but I'm looking hard.' "'Success to your search,' and Mr. Power turned to greet David, who approached. "'Now, what shall we play?' asked Christie, as the children gathered about her demanding to be amused. George Washington suggested leapfrog, and the others added equally impracticable requests, but Mrs. Wilkins settled the matter by saying, "'Let's have some play-acting, Christie.' That used to tickle the children amazingly, and I was never tired of hearing them pieces, especially the solemn ones. Yes, yes, do the funny girl with the baby, and the old woman, and the lady that took pison and had fits, shouted the children, charmed with the idea. Christie felt ready for anything just then, and gave them Tilly Slowboy, Miss Miggs, and Mrs. Gummidge, in her best style while the young folks rolled on the grass in ecstasies, and Mrs. Wilkins laughed till she cried. "'Now a touch of tragedy,' said Mr. Power, who sat under the elm with David leaning on the back of his chair, both applauding heartily. "'You insatiable people! Do you expect me to give you low comedy and heavy tragedy all alone? I'm equal to melodrama, I think, and I'll give you Miss St. Clair as Juliet if you wait a moment.' Christie stepped into the house, and soon reappeared with a white tablecloth draped about her, two disheveled locks of hair on her shoulders, 
and the vinegar cruet in her hand, that being the first bottle she could find. She meant to burlesque the poison scene, and began in the usual ranting way, but she soon forgot St. Clair and poor Juliet, and did it as she had often longed to do it, with all the power and passion she possessed. Very faulty was her rendering, but the earnestness she put into it made it most effective to her uncritical audience, who brought down the house when she fell upon the grass with her best stage drop, and lay there getting her breath after the mouthful of vinegar she had taken in the excitement of the moment. She was up again directly, and inspired by this superb success, ran in and presently reappeared as Lady Macbeth with Mrs. Wilkins' scarlet shawl for royal robes, and the leafy chaplet of the morning for a crown. She took the stage with some difficulty, for the unevenness of the turf impaired the majesty of her tragic stride, and fixing her eyes on an invisible thane, who cut his part shamefully and spoke in the gruffest of gruff voices, she gave them the dagger scene. David, as the orchestra, had been performing a drum solo on the back of a chair with two of the corn-cobs Victoria had been building houses with. But when Lady Macbeth said, "'Give me the daggers!' Christie plucked the cobs suddenly from his hands, looking so fiercely scornful, and lowering upon him so wrathfully with her court brows that he ejaculated an involuntary, "'Bless me!' as he stepped back quite daunted. Being in the spirit of her part, Christie closed with the sleepwalking scene, using the tablecloth again, while a towel composed the tragic nightcap of her ladyship. This was an imitation, and having a fine model and being a good mimic, she did well, for the children sat staring with round eyes, the gentlemen watched the woeful face and gestures intently, and Mrs. Wilkins took a long breath at the end, exclaiming, "'I never did see the beat of that for ghastliness. My sister Clarissa used to walk in her sleep, but she weren't half so kind of dreadful. If she had had the murder of a few friends on her conscience, I dare say she would have been,' said Christie, going in to make herself tidy." "'Well, how do you like her as an actress?' asked Mr. Power of David, who stood looking as if he still saw and heard the haunted lady. "'Very much, but better as a woman. I'd no idea she had it in her,' answered David in a wonder-stricken tone. "'Plenty of tragedy and comedy in all of us,' began Mr. Power. But David said hastily, "'Yes, but few of us have passion and imagination enough to act Shakespeare in that way.' very true. Christie herself could not give a whole character in that style, and would not think of trying. I think she could, and I'd like to see her try it, said David, much impressed by the dramatic ability which Christie's usual quietude had most effectually hidden. He was still thinking about it when she came out again. Mr. Power beckoned to her, saying as she came and stood before him, flushed and kindled with her efforts, now you must give me a bit from the merchant of venice portia is a favorite character of mine and i want to see if you can do anything with it no sir i cannot i used to study it but it was too sober to suit me i am not a judicial woman so i gave it up answered christie much flattered by his request and amused at the respectful way in which david looked at her then as if it just occurred to her she added I remember one little speech that I can say to you, sir, with great truth, and I will, since you like that play. 
Still standing before him, she bent her head a little, and with a graceful gesture of the hands, as if offering something, she delivered with heartfelt emphasis the first part of Portia's pretty speech to her fortunate suitor. "'You see me, Lord Bassinio, where I stand, such as I am. Though for myself alone I would not be ambitious in my wish, to wish myself much better. Yet for you I would be trebled twenty times myself, a thousand times more fair, ten thousand times more rich.' that only to stand high in your account I might in virtues, beauties, livings, friends exceed account. But the full sum of me is sum of something, which to term in gross is an unlessened girl, unschooled, unpractised. Happy in this, she is not yet so old, but she may learn. Happier than this, she is not bred so dull, but she can learn. Happiest of all is that her willing spirit commits itself to yours to be directed, as from her lord, her governor, her king. David applauded vigorously, but Mr. Power rose silently, looking both touched and surprised, and drawing Christie's hand through his arm, led her away into the garden for one of the quiet talks that were so much to her. When they returned, the Wilkinses were preparing to depart and after repeated leave-takings, finally got under way, were packed into the omnibus, and rumbled off with hats, hands, and handkerchiefs waving from every window. Mr. Power soon followed, and peace returned to the little house in the lane. Later in the evening, when Mrs. Sterling was engaged with a neighbor, who had come to confide some affliction to the good lady, Christie went into the porch and found David sitting on the step, enjoying the mellow moonlight in the balmy air. As he did not speak, she sat down silently, folded her hands in her lap, and began to enjoy the beauty of the night in her own way. Presently she became conscious that David's eyes had turned from the moon to her own face. He sat in the shade, she in the light, and he was looking at her with the new expression which amused her. "'Well, what is it? You look as if you never saw me before.' she said, smiling. "'I feel as if I never had,' he answered, still regarding her as if she had been a picture. "'What do I look like?' "'A peaceful, pious nun just now.' "'Oh, that is owing to my pretty shawl. I put it on in honour of the day, though it is a trifle warm, I confess.' And Christie stroked the soft folds about her shoulders, and settled the corner that lay lightly on her hair. I do feel peaceful to-night, but not pious. I am afraid I never shall do that, she added soberly. Why not? Well, it does not seem to be my nature, and I don't know how to change it. I want something to keep me steady, but I can't find it. So I whiffle about this way and that, and sometimes think I am a most degenerate creature. That is only human nature, so don't be troubled. We are all compasses pointing due north. We get shaken often, and the needle varies in spite of us. But the minute we are quiet, it points right, and we have only to follow it. The keeping quiet is just what I cannot do. Your mother shows me how lovely it is, and I try to imitate it. But this restless soul of mine will ask questions and doubt and fear, and worry me in many ways. What shall I do to keep it still?' asked Christie, smiling yet earnest. "'Let it alone. 
you cannot force these things, and the best way is to wait till the attraction is strong enough to keep the needle steady. Some people get their ballast slowly, some don't need much, and some have to work hard for theirs. Did you? asked Christie, for David's voice fell a little as he uttered the last words. I have not got much yet. I think you have. Why, David, you are always cheerful and contented, good and generous. If that is not true piety, what is? You are very much deceived, and I am sorry for it, said David, with the impatient gesture of the head and a troubled look. Prove it! And Christie looked at him with such sincere respect and regard that his honest nature would not let him accept it, though it gratified him much. He made no answer for a minute. Then he said slowly, as if feeling a modest man's hesitation to speak of himself, yet urged to it by some irresistible impulse. I will prove it, if you won't mind the unavoidable egotism. For I cannot let you think me so much better than I am. Outwardly I seem to you cheerful, contented, generous, and good. In reality I am sad, dissatisfied, bad, and selfish. See if I am not. I often tire of this quiet life, hate my work, and long to break away, and follow my own wild and willful impulses, no matter where they lead. Nothing keeps me at such times but my mother and God's patience. David began quietly, but the latter part of his confession was made with a sudden impetuosity that startled Christie. So utterly unlike his usual self-control was it. She could only look at him with the surprise she felt. His face was in the shadow, but she saw that it was flushed, his eyes excited, and in his voice she heard an undertone that made it sternly self-accusing. "'I am not a hypocrite,' he went on rapidly, as if driven to speak in spite of himself. "'I try to be what I seem, but it is too hard sometimes, and I despair. Especially hard is it to feel that I have learned to feign happiness so well that others are entirely deceived.' Mr. Power and Mother know me as I am. Other friends I have not, unless you will let me call you one. Whether you do or not after this, I respect you too much to let you delude yourself about my virtues. So I tell you the truth and abide to the consequences. He looked up at her as he paused, with a curious mixture of pride and humility in his face, and squared his broad shoulders as if he had thrown off a burden that had much oppressed him. Christie offered him her hand, saying in a tone that did his heart good, "'The consequences are that I respect, admire, and trust you more than ever, and feel proud to be your friend.' David gave the hand a strong and grateful pressure, said, "'Thank you,' in a moved tone, and then leaned back into the shadow, as if trying to recover from this unusual burst of confidence one from him by the soft magic of time, place, and companionship. Fearing he would regret the glimpse he had given her, and anxious to show how much she liked it, Christie talked on to give him time to regain composure. I always thought in reading the lives of saints or good men of any time that their struggles were the most interesting and helpful things recorded. Human imperfection only seems to make real piety more possible, and to me more beautiful. For where others have conquered, I can conquer, having suffered as they suffer, and seen their hard-won success. That is the sort of religion I want, something to hold by, live in, and enjoy, if I can only get it. 
I know you will. He said it heartily, and seemed quite calm again. So Christie obeyed the instinct which told her that questions would be good for David, and that he was in the mood for answering them. "'May I ask you something?' she began a little timidly. "'Anything, Christie,' he answered instantly. "'That is a rash promise. I am a woman, and therefore curious. What shall you do if I take advantage of the privilege?' "'Try and see.' "'I will be discreet, and only ask one thing,' she replied, charmed with her success. "'You said just now that you had learned to feign happiness. I wish you would tell me how to do it.' for it is such an excellent imitation i shall be quite content with it till i can learn the genuine thing david fingered the troublesome forelock thoughtfully for a moment then said with something of the former impetuosity coming back into his voice and manner i will tell you all about it that's the best way i know i shall some day because i can't help it so i may as well have done with it now since i have begun it is not interesting mind you only a grim little history of one man's fight with the world, the flesh and the devil. Will you have it? Oh, yes, answered Christie, so eagerly that David laughed, in spite of the bitter memories stirring at his heart. So like a woman, always ready to hear and forgive sinners, he said, then took a long breath and added rapidly, I'll put it in as few words as possible, and much good may it do you. Some years ago I was desperately miserable, never mind why. I dare say I shall tell you all about it some day, if I go on at this rate. Well, being miserable, as I say, everything looked black and bad to me. I hated all men, distrusted all women, doubted the existence of God, and was a forlorn wretch generally. Why I did not go to the devil I can't say. I did start once or twice— but the thought of that dear old woman in there sitting all alone and waiting for me dragged me back, and kept me here till the first recklessness was over. People talk about duty being sweet. I have not found it so, but there it was. I should have been a brute to shirk it, so I took it up and held on desperately till it grew bearable. "'It has grown sweet now, David, I am sure,' said Christie very low. "'No, not yet.' he answered with the stern honesty that would not let him deceive himself or others, cost what it might to be true. There is a certain solid satisfaction in it that I did not use to find. It is not a mere dogged persistence now, as it once was, and that is a step towards loving it, perhaps. He spoke half to himself, and sat leaning his head on both hands, propped on his knees, looking down as if the weight of the old trouble bent his shoulders again. "'What more, David?' said Christie. "'Only this. "'When I found I had got to live, and live manfully, "'I said to myself, "'I must have help, or I cannot do it. "'To no living soul could I tell my grief, "'not even to my mother, "'for she had her own to bear. "'No human being could help me, "'yet I must have help or give up shamefully. "'Then I did what others do "'when all else fails to sustain them. "'I turned to God.' not humbly, not devoutly, or trustfully, but doubtfully, bitterly, and rebelliously. For I said in my despairing heart, If there is a God, let him help me, and I will believe. He did help me, and I kept my word. Oh, David, how? 
whispered Christie, after a moment's silence, for the last words were solemn in their earnestness. The help did not come at once. No miracle answered me, and I thought my cry had not been heard. But it had, and slowly something like submission came to me. It was not cheerful nor pious. It was only a dumb, sad sort of patience, without hope or faith. It was better than desperation, so I accepted it, and bore the inevitable as well as I could. Presently, courage seemed to spring up again. I was ashamed to be beaten in the first battle, and some sort of blind instinct made me long to break away from the past and begin again. My father was dead. Mother left all to me and followed where I led. I sold the old place, bought this, and shutting out the world as much as I could, I fell to work as if my life depended on it. That was five or six years ago, and for a long time I delved away without interest or pleasure, merely as a safety valve for my energies, and a means of living, for I gave up all my earlier hopes and plans when the trouble came. I did not love my work, but it was good for me, and helped cure my sick soul. I never guessed why I felt better, but dug on with indifference first, then felt pride in my garden, then interest in the plants I tended, and by and by I saw what they had done for me, and loved them like true friends. A broad woodbine leaf had been fluttering against David's head, as he leaned on the slender pillar of the porch where it grew. Now, as if involuntarily, he laid his cheek against it with a caressing gesture and sat looking over the garden lying dewy and still in the moonlight, with the grateful look of a man who has learned the healing miracles of nature, and how near she is to God. "'Mr. Power helped you, didn't he?' said Christie, longing to hear more. "'So much. I never can tell you what he was to me, nor how I thank him. To him and to my work I owe the little I have won in the way of strength and comfort after years of effort.' I see now the compensation that comes out of trouble, the lovely possibilities that exist for all of us, and the infinite patience of God, which is to me one of the greatest of His divine attributes. I have only got so far, but things grow easier as one goes on, and if I keep tugging I may yet be the cheerful, contented man I seem. That is all, Christie, and a longer story than I meant to tell. Not long enough. Some time you will tell me more, perhaps, since you have once begun. It seems quite natural now, and I am so pleased and honored by your confidence. But I cannot help wondering what made you do it all at once, said Christie presently, after they had listened to a whippoorwill and watched the flight of a downy owl. I do not think I quite know myself, unless it was because I have been on my good behavior since you came, and being a humbug, as I tell you, was forced to unmask in spite of myself. There are limits to human endurance, and the proudest man longs to unpack his woes before a sympathizing friend now and then. I have been longing to do this for some time, but I never like to disturb Mother's peace or take Mr. Power from those who need him more. So today, when you so sweetly offered to help me if you could, it quite went to my heart and seemed so friendly and comfortable. I could not resist trying it tonight when you began about my imaginary virtues. That is the truth, I believe. Now, what shall we do about it? Just go on and do it again whenever you feel like it. I know what loneliness is, and how telling worries often cures them. 
I meant every word I said this morning, and will prove it by doing anything in the world I can for you. Believe this, and let me be your friend. They had risen, as a stir within them told the guest was going, and as Christie spoke she was looking up with the moonlight full upon her face. If there had been any hidden purpose in her mind, any false sentiment or trace of coquetry in her manner, it would have spoiled that hearty little speech of hers. But in her heart was nothing but a sincere desire to prove gratitude and offer sympathy. In her manner the gentle frankness of a woman speaking to a brother, and in her face the earnestness of one who felt the value of friendship, and did not ask or give it lightly. "'I will,' was David's emphatic answer, and then, as if to seal the bargain, he stooped down and gravely kissed her on the forehead. Christie was a little startled, but neither offended nor confused, for there was no love in that quiet kiss, only respect, affection, and much gratitude, an involuntary demonstration from the lonely man to the true-hearted woman who had dared to come and comfort him. Out-trotted neighbor Miller, and that was the end of confidences in the porch. But David played melodiously on his flute that night, and Christie fell asleep, saying happily to herself, now we are all right, friends forever, and everything will go beautifully. End of chapter twelve. Recording by Linda Lee Paquette.